0: It's Monday. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. I'm Jonathan. Joining me this week is Coco. Hi, I'm Coco. Thanks for coming back. So, here's what we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be going back to a topic we have not discussed in some time, and uh, a lot has changed since last time, so I'm hoping that we'll be able to cover some fun new territory. European-style game design versus American-style game design. So, look, we talked about this. I
1: just... Guys, for everyone who's listening, if you have an idea what the actual difference is, I really want to hear it because it's not just games designed by Europeans and games designed by Americans.
0: Nope, it is not.
1: Uh, okay, so when I when when I say like what's the what's the quintessential Euro game?
0: I would say Agricola.
1: Right. And I would go like Catan. And then Jonathan goes, No Well, okay. And then I would go, what's the quintessential American game? And Jonathan goes... Axis and Allies. And I go, like, I oh, don't know, pandemic. And Jonathan goes, well... <laughs> Not so so much. It's Okay, <laughs> so what's, what is the definition? Define for me European, Euro-style game.
0: Okay, uh, these are the kinds of cultural definitions that are really, really hard to put together. It's sort of a case where I, 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 know, it, I know it when I see it. Uh, but that's need, some
1: gatekeeping nonsense, and I really won't is. have it. It absolutely it will is. not have it, Jonathan. And I'm
0: going to do my best to open those gates wide, throw them open, and a lot because again, it's we've we've reached a point now where the distinction between the two is getting so fuzzy, and there's so much overlap mm-hmm. that the distinction has less meaning today than it has in any time since we started using those terms. Mm-hmm. And I expect that that trend is going to continue, mm-hmm. and that they're largely going to be markers of a bygone age when there was this weird sort of internecine split that has since been Healed magnificently into something that into games, these hybrid games that do things that we wouldn't have been able to imagine just ten right. years ago. Right. So here's where it comes from. It's we'll almost
1: t- like by making your art form more accessible to people, you get people who innovate within it.
0: That sounds pretty awesome to me.
1: I know. Okay, go on. Sorry. All
0: right. So how about um, on Monday we'll talk about the origins and development of European style games. Yep. On Wednesday we'll talk about the more American style stuff. Okay. And where and where that sort of arose as mm-hmm. a kind of a response in some ways to the dominance of Euro games within the hobby. And on Friday, we'll talk about the the, the hybridization, the reconciliation, and the increasing blurring of the lines okay. uh, to a point where the distinction has become almost meaningless today.
1: All right. Put on your seatbelts, everyone. I don't know what side of the road we're driving on, but Jonathan's going to tell us why.
0: <laughs> okay. 1995. Klaus Tober designs and publishes Settlers of Catan.
1: Praise be his name. <laughs>
0: Uh, this was what was at the time called a German-style game. Okay. Generally speaking, it was Germans who made them, and when you played them in North America, you kind of had to speak a little German, because, or read a little, a little German at least, because when they imported them, they did not have English translations. Okay. They got to be this huge thing. Um Catan is a hit for reasons that we've talked about before. Yeah. It's not difficult to understand. But uh, there were those gosh darn dice there. And uh, the hobby... Had a tendency to attract players who really, really wanted to best each other, who really wanted games to be something that was better than the real world, games where merit was what would determine the outcome, not happenstance. Hmm. And so you started to see this refinement of games over the late 90s and early aughties, and we would see the, the ascent and dominance of games like Puerto Rico. Have you played Puerto Rico?
1: I haven't played Puerto Rico, but I know a fair bit about it. But it's, it's... it's Give us the overview.
0: This is a game that has very, very little chance to it. Right. It is a game that is nearly as prescribed and scripted as chess. People mm-hmm. memorize openings for this game. Mm-hmm. Um and you can do that because it is so very, the form of it is so strict.
1: So it's, it's you are not rolling a dice or top decking.
0: No you... dice, no card draws. The question of which plantations are going to come up. The mm-hmm. story, whether it's going to be indigo or corn or tobacco or what have you. Those are going to be different from one game to the next.
1: Right. From one game to the next, but that's something you know at the beginning of the game and then spend the rest of the game accommodating for. Exactly. It's not and, something that will change mid-game.
0: And people will, um, will will say, okay, so a good corn strategy to take is this. A corn strategy is one you can take if it turns out that a lot of corn is coming up. Or a good uh, you know, a coffee strategy will be to go like this.
1: I have a coffee strategy, but I don't think it's this one.
0: <laughs> Most likely not. It, it, it reaches a point where people have played enough games of this, particularly on electronic forms, like Brecht Playing Puerto Rico on a tabletop is a fairly lengthy process Mm because there's a lot of pieces to move around, a lot of actuarial work to do, a lot to keep track of. When you play it on a computer, though, you can blitz through a game in about 15, 20 minutes, especially if you're familiar with it. So as a result, people play this game dozens, if not hundreds of times, just iterating on strategy and really, really getting freakishly good at it Mm -hmm. to a point where if a group of players... Is, is playing Puerto Rico, who are very familiar with it. It's very quickly going to become apparent which one of them is better than the others, and that player is always going to win.
1: I'm just, I'm envisioning the sort of like land parties, uh, like the StarCraft land parties that I was at, <laughs> and like I just can't wrap my head around that happening for Puerto Rico. But most I just likely, anyway. it's going
0: to be on the on the internet. These people will not be having a land party. They will not be in the same space. They will probably not want to be in the same space with each other because they're too busy demonstrating how much better they are at Puerto Rico than the other players. That's mm-hmm. the stereotype.
1: Just rocking the corn struts. It's, hard, hard corn. It's you
0: know, how dare you choose the captain? You know, people will right. would actually get if, if someone made a non traditional move, that would incite a lot of hard feelings from the other players because they were building their strategy on the basis of you making sensible choices. Of
1: course. So it's Baz Luhrmann, strictly ballroom. <laughs> anyway, it's obviously not. But what I'm hearing here is Euro game equals. Very little up to chance, very sort of prescribed tracks that one takes, depending on sort of what the initial setup looks like.
0: Which can also start to be an irritant to a lot of these players, because if, there are, if, if, if the tracks are that prescribed, then they can tell who's going to win very early on. Right. So the trend then got towards games that would allow more breadth, more options, multiple paths to victory. The phrase multiple paths to victory uh, became a sort of a magic word, and that was when Agricola rose to dominance right. in, uh, in, in that sphere. Because in Agricola, each player starts with these with a hand of cards and you spend the first twenty minutes of the game looking at your cards, figuring out, okay, how am I going to maximize my play using mm-hmm. this? Yeah. And then you start and you actually play the game.
1: That sounds awful. Um
0: for people who enjoy this particular contest of skill, it's great. Right. For people who are looking for a different kind of experience from their games, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's not what they're after. And uh, when we get to the uh, to the American the, the so-called Ameritrash schism, yeah. which happened uh, in the mid '80s, then we'll start to come to some of the origins of that. But when you look at these games, they have certain things in common. First of all, these are games that take themselves very very seriously. You look at the cover art. The stereotypical Euro game has a picture of a grumpy man in a medieval Renaissance setting on there. Uh, looking grumpy and
1: uh, sort of like he wishes he was an oil painting, possibly. Yeah.
0: And uh, most likely, this is the expression that the players are going to have on their faces if you just add a finger stroking their chin. Yeah. As they uh, as they try to calculate the ideal move to make in yeah. this situation. Yeah. Uh, secondly, these are games that have a lot of interlocking systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, games by Stefan Feld, for example, like mm-hmm. Trajan. Uh, these are quintessential euro games because yeah. they have a lot of little, relatively simple things, uh, like that are like gear wheels. Uh, each of them sort of uh, interlocking with the others yeah. and turning yeah. uh, to create a sort of an engine. Uh, most co- So-called engine building games are popular as, as, a, as a genre of Euro games. So
1: those are the sort of like, you you acquire a certain amount of resources and you acquire a thing that allows those resources to multiply with other resources that you yes. have and these things sort of like build up a machine together mm-hmm. that generates for you faster and faster the resources that you want.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, collecting cubes that turn into other cubes that turn into points.
1: Right. In is... conju- Collecting cubes in conjunction with other cubes Cubes and certain systems that you acquire alongside the cubes that generate different cubes that are point cubes.
0: Now you're getting the sense of a Euro game. Okay. So, so far as far as theme when with Euro games, we've talked about the Grumpy Man on the cover. That's pretty much it.
1: So you can effectively sort of like copy paste any Grumpy Man of any cover. Like Puerto Rico could also be... I still
0: say that Puerto Rico ought to be about robots doing asteroid mining. Um,
1: right, because then it would get over some of the awful colonial implications. There are, are some
0: ugly things going on there. That's also something that typically tends to be there because when you're building something up mm. and you want an easy go-to theme and you're a European... Right. There, there, there's, there's something handy that you could just grab from history right there that pretty much works.
1: Super handy. Yeah. Right, but if we were to make Puerto Rico about asteroid mining, the same thing. We could make we could make Agricola about something else that's not a farming dude, right? Like
0: We absolutely could. Here's the thing, though. Um, I believe in part that the reason why that Grumpy Man is there on the cover is because the culture that surrounded this idea of achievement and merit was very, very concerned with being taken seriously. Mm. Uh, the color schemes of these games tend to be rich browns yeah. and blues. Uh, these are games really that Really natu-
1: met- natural colors. Exactly.
0: These are things that are supposed to be uh, alongside your leather-bound edition of Moby Dick right. and, uh, and other classics of great literature right uh, as you see them in the canon of what is considered to be great literature
1: so is this is this sort of like a nerds needing a, and like you folks will excuse my use of the word <laughs> nerds because i'm talking about a group that i include myself in but sort of that desire to be taken seriously as opposed to like Whatever other faction of nerds you don't want to be associated with. Well,
0: we with. saw this with comic books as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, this desperate need for comics to be taken seriously resulted in a lot of very dark, very dour sort of stories that involved a lot of violence and brutality and other ugliness.
1: So, um, is, I mean.
0: Because that's, that's what adult means, right?
1: Right. Uh, right. So,
0: so an, an adult game is something that looks like chess, mm. it's, it looks respectable and uh, from you know, either medieval or renaissance, something that, uh, that has history, that has heft.
1: There's no, there isn't random. There is just your superior intellect
0: and uh, and your and your, your your merit. You know, you're deserving to right. win. Right. Now, um, this isn't the entirety of what Eurogames have brought us. Mm-hmm. This also came with a lot of other things that uh, that find their roots in the German style designs. Typically, Eurogames tend to involve not a lot of interaction between players.
1: Right, you're building your machine on your side of the table.
0: Exactly, because if there is a lot of interaction between players, then a group of weaker players can gang up on a stronger player and interact with their face and make the better player not win. Right. The interaction in Eurogames tends to be indirect. You can Mm. create or deny opportunities for the other players, but you can't directly smash their stuff.
1: Okay, Okay.
0: You also tend to see a certain discipline in design. Um, Euro games tend to have very clean, very elegant mechanics. Now, okay, elegant is a word that gets used a lot, or at least used to get used a lot, and in fact, the genre's detractors used it as a kind of a bludgeon against it. Uh, what I think what they meant by elegant was the same thing they mean by an elegant mathematical proof, something that accomplishes much with little. Uh, something that has a relatively small yeah. number of rules that create a very large number of possibilities and a lot of complicated uh, decisions to make, all of which have potential advantages and disadvantages.
1: Mm-hmm. I just I just can't say that I've seen so much of that elegance lately. I feel like I see in those years a lot a great deal of finickiness that doesn't link very strongly with the theme and doesn't seem to accomplish much. <laughs>
0: I believe that uh, where that comes from is in the need to balance those systems Mm. to make them so that they will be fair. Right. Whereas if you take a look at uh, older Euro designs Mm. from the late 90s, even something like Puerto Rico uh, isn't particularly fiddly at all. Mm. Okay. But other games that have come since then have have added new elements in Mm. order to correct the problems with this. That's
1: that sort of elasticity mechanic or whatever it is?
0: Yes, rubber banding. Yeah. Uh, something that allows people who fall behind to catch up. Power Grid was kind of a forerunner in that, uh, in that front. This Is, is, a is game Power Grid a euro? I would say Power Grid is absolutely a euro, although it is a much more vicious euro than most. There is the interaction in Power Grid, although still not direct, mm. uh, invites more, I guess what I'd call, screwage.
1: Because you, you can you sort of interrupt people's lines. You can block
0: right? other players. Yeah. You can buy up the fuel that they need. You can mm-hmm. bid up the power plants that they want to buy so they have to yeah. pay more money for them. And that's N- that's
1: a part of your machine, but it's a way that you are actively screwing someone else's situation.
0: By creating or denying opportunities for them rather than by right. directly taking away their stuff. Right. And similarly, the fact that there's so little randomness in Power Grid, the Mm. fact that the mechanics, again, are relatively clean and elegant Mm. and simple, it's just that they lead to these complicated decisions. That marks it as a European-style game.
1: Okay, so simplicity, sort of like logical... Uh, what sort of logical fallout to every decision that you make? That you need to calculate when you're making that decision,
0: and no easy decisions whatsoever. This is something that, as, as Euros sort of gradually got more and more Euroy, every mm. single decision had to carry the weight of the entire game on it. Mm. Everything had to be hard. Everything had to be as challenging as possible. You know, chin stroking intensifies. Yeah, right, right. There you are, um,
1: sitting on the cover of the box, <laughs> intensely <laughs> stroking your chin. Uh, yikes.
0: And so I think uh, Stefan Feld, in many ways, is sort of the, uh, the the poster boy for the for modern day contemporary European style designs, particularly mm-hmm. the heavier ones. Okay. But Euros have also sort of expanded to include lighter designs mm-hmm. like patchwork and cottage garden, which we spoke about last week.
1: And see, that's that's the thing is if you were to describe a game like. Power Grid, and then describe Hmm. a game like Patchwork. I wouldn't say those two games fall into the same broad category, where (laughs) the broad category is any less broad than board games.
0: The only way to really see that is to trace both of their lineages back and back and back, and ultimately it leads to those mid-90s German-style games.
1: What it sounds like you're just saying is that they're both Euros because they both sort of seem like games that were designed by people from Europe. What is it? What... There, were,
0: there have been Americans who have designed these kinds of games yeah. and also uh, you know, people from all around the of world.
1: Of course, of course. But what I'm saying is, what is it actually that makes Patchwork and, let's say, Power Grid Euros? What do they Patchwork share? Patchwork
0: is, okay, uh, firstly, I'd say that Patchwork is a Euro because it involves relatively non-violent subject matter. Fair. I'd say that quilt making doesn't involve too much stabbing. Uh, okay. It involves subtle, indirect interaction.
1: I, okay, I want to. I want to go back from non-violent just because, like, Puerto Rico is a pretty violent. There are some violent implications there. Even the if violence you're...
0: is masked in Puerto Rico. Certainly. So
1: the, it's not a war game where what you are doing is attacking someone else. It is. A, it is a growth. It
0: game. presents itself as non Okay, that's fair. Anyway, we'll so you're
1: way. you're not attacking your opponents. Let's go from there.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, at least you are not. Yeah, you're not directly attacking your opponents. Yeah. you are attacking them by creating or denying opportunities for them. Right. The uh, the indirect interaction right. is key, and the discipline of design of mm. uh, not creating a specific rule for each individual thing, but allowing the overall design to dictate what the play patterns are going to be.
1: I see. Okay, that helps a lot.
0: So that's that's where we are today as far as Euro games. They are both complex and simple. They are both very very abstract and very beautifully themed. Mm-hmm. These are games that are beautifully presented presented as well uh, and designed for the most part to be relaxing
1: mm, okay. designed
0: to present you with something that is soothing and challenging and is a good the equivalent of going for a hike
1: you so know, you're it's like
0: strenuous for the mind but not stressful for thus for the soul
1: so you're intellectually engaged but your pulse is, is normal
0: that actually sounds like a really good description Okay. Uh, I think that that's actually a very good fit for it. So, we've gone on for a while about this. On Wednesday, we're going to come back and we're going to get into the American School of Game Design and how it arose in some ways in a res- as a direct response to this. See you then. <laughs>